Okay, so I was talking about the second essay in the genealogy, and I, in particular, talked about Nietzsche's, uh, Nietzsche's analysis of what he takes to be the prehistory of the modern phenomenon of bad conscience, which he takes to be terribly important. And as I said, he thinks the aboriginal phenomenon from which this arose is a kind of self-direction of aggressive energies. One has aggressive energies when those aggressive energies cannot be discharged outward, they're turned against themselves. So it's a kind of proto-psychoanalytic view, actually. Freud, as you know, continuously said that he'd never read Nietzsche. Um, and that's probably true and false, as most of these things are. He probably didn't read Nietzsche, but you didn't have to read Nietzsche in, um, in Vienna in 1890 to know Nietzsche. I mean, everybody was reading Nietzsche. So I mean, it would be a bit like one of you saying you'd never read Rawls. Well, you know, maybe you never did read Rawls, but that wouldn't, as it were, stop you. Uh, so so, so the, the fundamental phenomenon is this, is this historical and social phenomenon in which uh, urbanization causes uh, aggressions to be turned against themselves. That means I want to inflict pain, and I want to inflict pain on myself then, faute de mieux, since I can't inflict it on others. Now, he says, this desire to uh, inflict pain on oneself uh, then gets connected with another uh, phenomenon which has an independent origin, which is the phenomenon of, roughly speaking, justice or primordial justice. That is the phenomenon of people exchanging things and in exchanging things trying to exchange equals for equals. That some notion, so he says, human beings are by nature measuring animals. We measure things and we exchange things. And if we measure things and we exchange things, then we form this normative idea of a just or a fair uh, exchange, which is an exchange of equivalence, so equal on both sides. What happens if instead of direct exchange, then you have debt, you have not an exchange which takes place uh, in the in the same time frame, but I give you something expecting you to give me something back of equivalent value later. Under those circumstances, he says, it can happen that the debtor defaults. And what do we do if the debtor defaults? If the debtor defaults, the relation of equality between uh, the two is disturbed. And how can it be uh, reestablished? And his idea is, well, one of the ways in which it can be reestablished, you can see, is it can be reestablished if you assume that, in fact, human beings naturally like to inflict pain on other people. That's a thing we enjoy doing. And so if you think of uh, the exchange of goods, we exchange goods, and the goods are goods that have, roughly speaking, pleasure values for us. I have 20 apples, I can get a certain amount of pleasure from that. You have four sheep, you can get a certain amount of pleasure for that. We exchange these. And now, if you give me the 20 sheep today, and I say I will pay you 100 pounds tomorrow, but I default, you can reestablish equality by allowing you to inflict 20 sheep's worth or 100 pounds worth of pain on me. And that can then co coalesce into 
a social formation, that is, a set of institutions. So we have a set of institutions in which you either pay up or you're, you're, you have pain inflicted on you. Now, in the original form of it, the pain is inflicted on you by someone else, the, the, by, I'm sorry, by the creditor. In the original form, if I default to you, you can uh, inflict the pain on me. Eventually, the function of punishment is assigned to someone else for various reasons. That's not part of the story. Uh, the, so part of the story is that you get an association of ideas that's, uh, <coughs> that's established between the idea of being in debt and the idea of possibly suffering pain in the future. So uh, given that I live in a society in which every time I'm in debt, if I default, I will have pain inflicted on me. If that social institution is well established, then he appeals in one of his, the places in which he's not making fun of British psychologists. Uh, he appeals to the association of ideas, and he says, therefore, the idea of debt, and in particular the idea of defaulting on debt, will become strongly associated with the notion of pain. You'll expect pain if you deviate from this uh, norm of exchange. Okay? So there'll be a strong association between being in debt and violating uh, debts and the expectation of infliction of pain. Now, he says, a further development can be that you can reconstrue the relation between any individual and the individual society, that is, the customary morality of that society. You can reconstrue that relation as if it were a relation between two debtors. So just as I give you the sheep, you promise to pay me tomorrow. Similarly, the society as a whole can be seen as a benefactor giving you these benefact benefactions on condition that you repay it. You don't give the, the society 100 pounds back. You give society conformity back. So conformism, particularly conformism, conformity to the customs and the moral codes of the society is what you expect in return for the benefits of society. Then he says, well, if you get this far, you can see why uh, a person who deviates from social morality, or even a person who deviates in any serious way from form, well, certainly anyone who deviates from forms of what he calls Sittlichkeit, customary morality, but any form of deviation from conventional uh, norms will be associated with pain. I will be pained by that. I'll be anxious about it. Because uh, just as, because I've, so, I've developed an association of ideas between the idea of not doing, not conforming to the expectation, not repaying the debt, and being punished. And so if nonconformity is a way of not, pay, not repaying the debt, then if I, am a non, if, if I don't conform, I will be pained. So that's the way, and that's the, so that's his argument basically about one of the strands of the development of, uh, moral, of bad conscience. Now as I said, note that bad conscience goes through two transitions. There's primordial bad conscience, which is this active desire to inflict pain on yourself. That active desire to inflict pain on yourself can become internalized. What this happens, what, what this development that I've described is a development that shows how the active desire to pain yourself gets, connect, gets transformed into something internal. 
I, I don't just, uh, I don't just uh, uh, fear uh, uh, something and inflict pain on myself. I, 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 I experience an internal fear now of pain that will be inflicted on me. Now, notice, fear of a, of a pain that will be inflicted on me is not yet a very high-level moral kind of conscience, consciousness. Uh, I'm not actually exhibiting bad conscience if the pain I feel is a pain of being caught out and punished. That's not the real form that bad conscience takes. It's a proto-form of it. It's a somewhat developed form of it, but not, it's not the full form yet. Now Nietzsche then adds a final thing in which he says, uh, well, I've described this phenomenon up to now, but notice there's a further uh, observation you can make about the history of moralities. You can see that moralities have a kind of progressive quality. That is, moralities move. They're not static. They develop. And they don't seem to develop in a random way. They don't see, just seem to develop in a random way. They seem to develop in a particular direction. They develop in the direction of becoming more strict. Right? So there's, you can see, he says, that this is a kind of natural development of these things. So he's thinking here primarily, I assume, about things like the Sermon on the Mount in Christianity. Right? As you know, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes up to the mountain and he says, it was said of you to, of old, don't kill people. But I say to you, don't even be angry with people. So the old dispensation is don't kill anyone. And now there's an addition to that, which is a, which is a further internalization of that, that requirement. It isn't just that you shouldn't kill people. You shouldn't even be angry. Or he says, it was said to, me, to you of old, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, don't even lust after uh, uh, women, a woman who's not your wife. So, so he says, this development you can see is a development of setting higher and higher moral standards for people, standards of conventional behavior. So first you have relatively crude uh, kinds of behavior that are forbidden. Then you have more internalized and sophisticated forms of behavior that are, that are forbidden. And now Nietzsche says, the reason for this is, in fact, that we have a tendency to impose upon ourselves more and more stringent demands precisely when it becomes too easy to satisfy the previous demands. So he says it's characteristic that demands, that the moral demands people put upon themselves are always a little bit more than what it's natural for them to do. So in the really archaic period of 200 years, 400 years before uh, uh, 500 BC, it was really hard to get through life without killing people. And so you you could hold yourself to this moral standard of not killing people. When it now note, and what, what he says is, and now you might expect that as it becomes easier to satisfy these moral demands, as it becomes easier to satisfy these moral demands, people become more satisfied with themselves. But in fact, the reverse happens. Precisely when it becomes too easy to satisfy the moral demands, people begin to raise the bar precisely when uh, it's easy to go through life not killing people, not committing adultery, not doing whatever. At that point, 
they don't, they don't sit down and say, oh, well, look, like the Pharisee, oh, look, look at how good I am. I haven't killed anybody this week. I haven't, look, I haven't, I haven't killed anyone. Look, 60 years, I haven't killed anyone, you know, haven't committed adultery, I haven't done anything. Look, look at how great it is. And Nietzsche says, precisely at that point, you'll have, you'll have a human power which will be a human power which will set a higher bar than the, than the previous moral bar. So he calls this, you remember, active bad conscience. So bad conscience isn't just the feeling that uh, I uh, anticipate, the feeling of pain, which consists in an anticipation of the pain that I might uh, that might be inflicted upon me if I fail in these moral requirements, but it further consists in an attempt to set myself and others yet higher requirements on when it's the case that it's too easy for me to satisfy the previous uh, 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 things. And now Nietzsche says, and this is comprehensible if you see that the point of the moral, the moral, the moral requirement is precisely that it not be realizable. So uh, the, the point of the moral requirement is not to tell you what to do. The point of the moral requirement is to allow you to be unhappy, right? So the point of the moral requirement is to put something up which is higher than the normal standard of behavior that it's easy for you to aspire to. And by putting that up, to allow yourself to express the aggressive energy that you have, which you can't express externally, but you can express uh, towards yourself. So he says, so the underlying motor of this process is the need to, 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 to inflict pain upon yourself. And how can you inflict, inflict pain on yourself? Well, you can inflict pain on yourself by holding yourself precisely to standards that are standards that you know you're usually not going to live up to. And when you don't know you don't live up to them, you're going to feel uh, psychic pain because of that. And that, uh, so he talks about rudimentary bad conscience. He talks about exter this externalized bad conscience, which he describes in the Plains Indians. He talks about Bad, an internalized bad conscience, which is the bad conscience in which, which, you, which you encounter when you, uh, you, you're afraid of being punished for failing on your debt. Then there's another kind of bad conscience, which is active bad conscience, which is not just feeling bad when you default on your debt, but setting the barrier of morality so high so that you can have the great pleasure of inflicting uh, a pain on yourself by feeling bad by virtue of not having lived up to that standard. So any number of forms of a bad conscience. And then, as I said, in addition, there is this speculative model that he describes, which is the model of a possible good conscience, which he describes at the beginning, which is something that might arise by virtue of this transformation. OK. Now note, now I'm going to move to the third essay. Now notice that this doesn't give us one important component in the story of Christianity. Namely, this gives us, uh, this doesn't give us uh, a, the, the important component in Christianity, which is the way in which in Christianity, bad conscience, which is, so bad conscience is this psychic mechanism. 
But this doesn't yet give us the connection of that bad conscience, that mechanism of imposing suffering on yourself, with the thing that he described in the first essay, namely good and evil. Right? I mean, up to now, good and evil have played no role in the second essay. The second essay is about defaulting on your debts, uh, it's about punishing yourself, it's about holding yourself to high standards. Holding yourself to high standards is, you might think, is more likely to be a kind of good-bad conception. I, you know, I go out and run, if I were to run, and I try to run one day at a certain level, and then when I can, so I, I try to run the mile, I don't know, in, in 20 minutes, and then the next time, if when I can do that, I run it in 15 minutes, and I'm constantly setting the barrier high. It seems as if that's a kind of gradual process, a process that's more like the process of good and bad than the, than the dichotomous process of describing something as good and evil. So it seems as if this mechanism is a, is a, is a kind of analog, uh, it's, a kind of, it's, a, it's, a, it's a progressive mechanism rather than a yes-no mechanism. So how does good and evil get, in, get involved in all of this? Note, too, that as we left it at the end of essay one, at the, as, as we left it at the end of essay one, we had a deeply non-Christian conception, which was the conception of more associated with good and evil. You remember, at the end of essay one, we had the masters describing themselves as good and describing the peasants as not good. The slaves describing the masters as evil and themselves as not evil, namely, therefore good. But note, that is not the central model in Christianity, right? That's not the central model in Christianity. The central model in Christianity is not, you are evil, I am not evil, I am good. The central, mo the central model in Christianity, at least according to Nietzsche, is not you are evil, I am evil. So how do I get from a structure in which I'm the slave, I'm describing you, the master, as evil, and myself as not evil, therefore as good, how do I get from that to uh, not, not the master is evil, the master might be evil too, but I am evil. So there are two reversals in the course of the book. And it's really important to see that through two reversals. In the first essay, there's a reversal in that the masters are good, everybody else is bad. Then it shifts around. The slaves say the masters are evil and we the slaves are good. Now the second transformation is a transformation which characterizes not the masters as evil and the slaves as good, but the situation in which the slaves describe themselves as evil. So there's a second transformation in this thing, and without that, you can't really understand what's going on. Remember the model. Remember the model of the Pharisee and the publican that I talked about last time or the time before. I mean, when in the aboriginal Christian story, it isn't the uh, it isn't the ma it isn't the master the Pharisee who goes away justified right who says uh, all these other people are who say, basically the, the the Pharisee says oh the Romans they're evil I'm not evil I do all of my I do all of my good works etc I'm good he's not the one who goes away justified the one who goes away justified remembers the publican who 
who's, who lies in the dust next to the Pharisee and doesn't say, look, I'm good because I'm not evil. The publican says, I am myself a sinner. Pardon me, the sinner. So you've got to somehow have a second step, a second step transformation of this, a second reversal to get the full structure going. So what's going to happen is the first essay talks about good, bad, good, evil. The second essay talks about this mechanism of imposing punishment and pain on yourself. And the third essay is in a way going to put the two of them together and show that only when you put the two of them together in the right way do you get the full, the full lovely lotus flower, the full lovely uh, uh, swamp, uh, swamp, swamp plant of uh, Christianity, the great, muddy, uh, uh, awful, and wonderful thing. So, so, the, so the third essay describes this second reversal that we get from they, the masters, are, are good, they, the masters, are evil, we are good, to we are evil. And how do you get that? Now notice, too, that the distinction that Nietzsche makes between the knights, the uh, priests and the slaves, that, that distinction from the first essay plays no role in the second essay. So the second essay is an independent uh, treatise. Uh, uh, so now in the third essay, what happens is the distinction between the masters, the priests, and the slaves becomes important again. So he goes back to that distinction. And now uh, there's a further thing that, I th that, in my view, is really important to understand to un in understanding this, although Nietzsche isn't very clear about it. Um, he's not unclear about it because he's unclear. He's just unclear about it because he doesn't bother with it. But I think if you think about it this way, um, it'll make a lot of sense to you. Uh, think about Nietzsche as if he were distinguishing between what you might call ascetic practices and the ascetic ideal. That is, uh, there are all sorts of human practices that have the property of being ascetic. Ascetic just means having to do with training, or it's just the Greek word for, for cultivating or training, askeok, to cultivate or train something. So an ascetic practice is a practice of training. It then comes to mean a practice of training in which I am abstemious for a particular reason. So if I want to go out and run the, uh, the uh, run a race in one day, I have a particular kind of goal. I want to run the race. I want to run the race well then I might do something which I otherwise would not do. Namely, I might not go out and I might decide not to go out and get drunk the day before. Because I might think that getting drunk the day before, nice as it might be, would actually not be conducive to my running the race well. So uh, I have a certain goal. I have a certain naturalistic goal. I want to run the race. I think, how can I run the race best? Well, one thing would be not to get drunk before the race. Now, and, and, and that's an ascetic, you can, and he says that's an ascetic practice because it's a prax, practice of your not doing 
what you would otherwise be in naturally inclined to do and not doing what you would naturally be inclined to do for some particular reason. So I would naturally be inclined, say, to go out and, and, and get drunk. And if I were naturally inclined to get, go out and get drunk, I might, re I might get that under control and not do it and not do it in order to do something else. So you remember he emphasizes again and again that the world is full of ascetic practices. And they have a variety of different significances. You know, you might not do certain things that you would otherwise do uh, for all sorts of reasons having to do with what, uh, what, what, with what your goals are. So that's an ascetic practice. Now note, an ascetic practice is not the same as what Nietzsche means by an ascetic ideal. He means by an ascetic ideal a conception that ascasis is good in itself and independent of its connection with a particular goal. So if I want to run a race or I want to take an exam or I want to do some, something, and because of that, I control myself the day before. Uh, I don't drink, I don't take drugs, I don't do anything. I do it for a particular reason. That's an ascetic practice. What Nietzsche's described, when Nietzsche talks about the ascetic ideal, however, he, what he means is some form of asceticism that is detached from its, what you might call its natural context. It, so instead of saying, don't drink now because you've got to drive, or don't drink now because you've got to run the race. You say, it's inherently good not to drink. It's inherently good, or it's inherently, sorry, it's inherently bad to drink, it's inherently good not to drink. That is, you, that, to make something an ascetic ideal is to detach it from uh, the context in which it naturally made sense uh, and to present it as if it were a thing freestanding of itself which had value of itself, to make it a kind of Kantian ideal of action. And now Nietzsche says, and the, the, the schema for all of these forms of formation of ascetic ideals is the idea that it's good in itself for the will to turn against itself. So when I engage in an ascetic practice, he says, to engage in an ascetic practice is in some sense to turn my will against it itself. Because here I am, I know I have to run the race in the afternoon, in the morning I get drunk. And now my, and, or in the morning I don't get drunk. I, so in the morning I don't get drunk. And what that means is in the morning I get up, my will is that I have something to drink, and I turn my will against itself. I don't do what I wanted to do. And now, if it's just a practice, I don't do that because I know I want to run the race in the afternoon. And so, and that then Nietzsche connects with notions like having a strong will and having self-control. I've developed power of self-control, so I know Many people wouldn't be able to do that, perhaps, but I know that I'm going to run the race in the afternoon. I have developed this power of self-control so I can turn my will against itself in, in this particular context. But what he says is, in an ascetic practice, I'm turning the will against itself in the context of a particular practice, and that's subordinate to some long, larger structure, which is a structure of, of asserting my will. So when I don't drink, uh, I, when I don't get drunk before running the race, 
in the, in the short context, it may look as if I'm being ascetic. I want to have a drink, but I don't have a drink. But in a longer context, you can see that form of local asceticism as part of a larger project of my will. Namely, I want to go and win the race. And, I want to, and because I want to win the race, I cause my, because that's my over, overriding goal, that's the, the goal that, that, that really drives me, that goal is so powerful, my will for that is so powerful, that in the short run, I can turn the will against itself so that although I happen to have a desire for a drink, I don't have a drink. So, so now what Nietzsche says is these ascetic practices are as good as they are good. That is, there's nothing more to be said about them. Some of them are good, some of them are bad. Some, so, you know, so you might, so, some of them work, some of them don't work. You might be wrong about that, right? You might actually um, have a, run a better race if you had some alcohol. So you can be wrong about these ascetic practices. You can be wrong about them. You can be wrong about the goal. You can choose a silly goal. You can, you can do all sorts of things. They can be right, they can be wrong. But there's nothing inherently wrong about them. They're, they're, they, as, as he says, they are what they are. There they are, and you evaluate them. What he objects to is the transformation of these into ideals. That is, what he objects is that is the, the reconstrual of these things as good, not because they lead to particular naturalistic consequences, but because it's good in itself for the will to be turned against itself. And sometimes he says, as you know, when he's talking about his own project, that his project is to de-idealize asceticism. That is, uh, he's not against asceticism. Uh, he's against the ascetic ideal. And sometimes when he's thinking about this more generally, he says, my, pro my project is to turn all of these things which uh, are presented as part of an ascetic ideal to renaturalize them. So, uh, and, and, and this is most uh, keenly visible perhaps in the case of things like um, um, uh, things like virtues. Um, Bernard Williams, at the end of his life, was very interested in this. How does it come about that, say, truth-telling comes to be an absolute value? Well, why? Wh what can we say about truth-telling? Well, one thing you can say about truth-telling is truth-telling is often a form of asceticism because I tell you, if I tell you the truth, what it means is I'm not telling you whatever happens to come to my mind, and I'm not telling you what would please me. I'm telling you the truth. You know, my father was a complete fantast. He never lied just because he had no, he was a bit like Tony Blair. He just had no sense of truth or falsity. He just produced this confabulation. You know, he, what he talked, what, what he told you was what sounded right to him and what pleased him, etc. And so this confabulation, truth-telling, and so Nietzsche's idea is that really, we're all like that, right? I mean, Nietzsche's model of the human being is that we're, Nietzsche's model of the human being is that we're not passive agents who are impringed upon by other things. His model of us is that we're active generators of images. That's what we really are. What we really are as human beings is we're generators of images. And these images are variant and they're unique and they're incomplete and, they're, and they, they're, they're not consistent with each other at all. We just spontaneously generate these images. That was what my father was like. He just, you know, just, and then you have to impose upon yourself a kind of discipline in order to tell the truth. So, you know, my father felt in a good mood someday and he said, oh, I'm so rich. Oh, I'm so rich. Oh, I'm so rich. He was dirt poor. But 
he felt rich. So he said he was rich. So there's the spontaneous generation of these images. Then there's truth telling, which is a kind of ascetic practice which you impose on it. So that instead of just saying, I'm rich, if you feel rich, you, you, you say not what you want to say, but what is true. And to say what's true rather than what you would like to be true is an, a form of asceticism. I'd like it to be the case that so and so, such and such, but to tell you the truth, uh, it's not. So, so truth telling is a kind of asceticism. Now the question is, uh, why is it an ascetic practice or is, an ascetic, is it an ascetic ideal? And Nietzsche says, look, Christianity has raised truth telling to the status of an ascetic ideal. That is, it said, you must always tell the truth regardless. Truth telling, don't think that you don't think that you should tell the truth because of any kind of consequences it should have. Truth telling is just good in itself. And Nietzsche, now Nietzsche, and Nietzsche says, and you can see a kind of asceticism in that. You must tell the truth no matter what. Kant's famous example, you remember, even if you know when the man comes to the door and he's going to kill your friend, and he says, where's your friend? Even if you know he's going to kill your friend, you must tell him the truth. Because truth telling has a value in itself. It has no connection to any kind of uh, conditional uh, benefits that might come from it. So truth telling, so the virtue of truth is, pr is presented as, a, uh, as, a, as an ideal, something that's not conditional. And what Nietzsche essentially says is, uh, you can imagine renaturalizing many of these virtues, renaturalizing even the virtue of truth telling. That is, there are good reasons for us usually to tell the truth. There are good reasons for that because our, our society needs reliable information, because uh, for all sorts of reasons. But it doesn't follow from that the truth-telling, as, as he'll say, it doesn't follow from that the truth-telling truth is a value in itself. And it certainly doesn't follow from that that it's a value in itself and a value that's more important than all other values. In some contexts, it might be better to save your friend's life, even at the cost of lying to the murderer who's about to come in and, and, and knife him. So, uh, so this distinction between ascetic practices, and Nietzsche talks about a lot of ascetic practices. As you know, he says, even the artist, who seems to be very spontaneous, is a person who engages in all sorts of ascetic practices. Uh, he structures or she structures her life, doesn't do what they want to do in order to get something done. So that's distinct from the notion of an ascetic, of an ascetic ideal. OK, now, how do we get all of this together? How do we get good and evil in the first essay, the mechanism of self-torment in the second essay, and this notion of uh, uh, an ascetic ideal. And how does that co come together? And now he goes back at this point to the story that he told, the myth he told in the first essay, focusing in the first essay, he focused on the distinction between the masters and the slaves. In this essay, he focuses on the priests and the slaves. So there's a so he goes back to the structure, but there's a slight difference in the structure. And now you remember he emphasizes that for various reasons the priests are going to be experts in sickness and suffering. Uh, since um, 
they're, going, they're going to be members of a dominant group, but they're going to be members of a dominant group who, uh, by virtue of being sidelined from the rough and tumble of life, tend to become uh, sickly, debilitated, and experts in dealing with sickness. So they will have a number of ascetic practices that they impose upon themselves to distinguish themselves from other people. You remember he says, you can engage in ascetic, for example, you can engage in, for, this is perfectly fine for Nietzsche, you can engage in ascetic practices to distinguish yourself from other groups. Right, as you know, in lots of primitive societies, people fast, and they think they become sacred by virtue of fasting. And Nietzsche says, well, that's perfectly understandable. What they're showing is they're distinguishing themselves from run-of-the-mill people, because run-of-the-mill people eat every time they, they, they want to, and they're showing that they have greater spiritual power than or ordinary people, because ordinary people eat any time they want to, and the priests don't eat any time they want to. They have a set of rules that that restrict what they want to eat. So, so Nietzsche, and now Nietzsche has nothing wrong, has no, nothing against that, because what he says is that's a clear expression of a straightforward will to power. The priests want to lord it over other people. They want to be distinguished over other people. They want to generate in other people the idea that they have this spiritual strength. This is a very good way of doing it, because they show that you have to eat. You eat whenever you want to. I don't eat whenever I want to. I so that, so that, note, that is not yet an ascetic ideal. That's just an ascetic practice that the, that the priests have. So the priests are going to be ill, they're going to be experts in suffering, and they're going to have these ascetic practices, which they're familiar with. Now, the slaves, you remember, are suffering. And they're suffering and degenerate, and they're suffering because they're weak. And they have, at this point in the story, the concept of evil. So they're weak, and they have the concept of evil, but they use the concept of evil to, uh, to, 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 um, to characterize the uh, members of the other group, the masters. Now, furthermore, Nietzsche thinks that the slaves, at this point in the story, are not just suffering but they're suffering in the worst possible way. Namely, they're suffering without being able to give any particular meaning to the suffering. So Nietzsche says, suffering itself, pain, nothing wrong with that. Pain is fine, suffering is fine, as long as we human beings can give it some meaning. If I want to run the race, and I have to put myself through torture to run the race, that will be pain. There's nothing wrong with that pain, because it's pain in the service of something else. So Nietzsche, so this is a really deeply, uh, deeply rooted Nietzschean idea, that suffering by itself is not good or bad. What's bad is meaningless or senseless suffering, suffering that I can't give a meaning to. And the slaves have a word for the masters, namely evil, and they have a word for themselves, namely good, but they don't have, they can't give, but they're still suffering, and they can't yet give any meaning to that suffering. That's the first point. The second point is, now this is really important for Nietzsche too. When Nietzsche talks about meaning or sense, he almost always means uh, some connection with the human will. That is, meaning for him is not, a is not in the first instance a semantic category. Meaning or sense is not in the first instance 
uh, connected with uh, der Schnee ist weiß means snow is white. It's not a semantic category. Meaning is a practical category. To say something has meaning, for Nietzsche means, it appears in a context of human practice. And more importantly, to say it has meaning means I can, I have some project, and I can see how this item would fit into that project. That's what it is for, for, for it to have meaning. Think of Georg Lukacs's um, analysis of the Iliad and of Robinson Crusoe, right? Uh, Lukacs talks about Robinson Crusoe, and he says, look, we have this poetic object in, in Robinson Crusoe, which is the hammer. How can a hammer be an aesthetic object? You know, Robinson Crusoe is abandoned on the, on the island, and he's starving to death, and he's got this, he finds this hammer from his ship. And now, now Lukács says, how can a silly thing like a hammer be an aesthetic object? And he says, well, it's an aesthetic object because it's really meaningful in the context of this story. And now, why is it meaningful in the context of this story? It's meaningful in the context of this story because Robinson Crusoe is starving to death. He needs to build a hut. The hammer fits into that project of building a hut. If I were walking down the street of Cambridge and I saw a hammer, that hammer would not have that kind of meaning for me. Because I'd walk by. I might notice it. I might note that you know, the word for it is hammer, and that's what's called a hammer. And you know, I might notice all sorts of things about it. But it wouldn't have sense or meaning for me. It would have sense or meaning for me means it fits into a project of action that I've got. So, so if you take that analysis of meaning, then to say that suffering has no meaning is to say my suffering is just something that I experience. It just comes over me. It isn't that I can't tell a story about it. It's that I can't connect it with any kind of practice. I can't transform. This is, this is a central 19th century thought. You find it in Hegel, too, that the worst thing, as it were, is to be passive, to have things happen to you. As human beings, we want to be active. We want to transform what passively happens to us into something that we do ourselves. That's a really central. Uh, it, goes back to Humboldt and various people at the beginning of the 19th century. So this is, this is really important for Nietzsche. So to make something meaningful or, send, or to give it sense is to give me a project which is a human project and which is a human project that has the property that this thing can be seen to play a really important role in that project of action for me. And what, ne what Nietzsche says is, and the slaves, at the point we've, we've, we're at, don't have such a project for suffering. They still they have the concept of evil, they have the concept of good, and they suffer. But they're still just suffering. They can't do anything with the suffering. They can't make anything of the suffering. They can't connect. The suffering isn't connected with any active project they've got. And, and he says, it's intol this is intolerable. Now, the priests, he says, can help them out. And the, or or they, they do help them out. And they help them out for their own reasons. They help them out in order to exercise control over them. That's a different part of the story, though. But, the, but Nietzsche says the priests have two kinds of help they can give to the slaves. One kind of help is help which he calls innocent, unschuldig, unschuldige Mittel. 
innocent things that, that, he can, that they can do for the slaves. For example, he says, they can help the slaves overcome their suffering by giving them meaningless rituals which will numb their sensibility and take their mind off what they're, what they're going through. So this is Nietzsche's Protestant idea about Catholicism, you know, people sitting in church mumbling. They're not sort of doing anything, they're mumbling. It's this mind-numbing mind ritual. And so Nietzsche says this is a perfectly innocent thing. The priests t teach them how to chant and count their beads. And these are pointless, pointless things, but they uh, but they take your mind off your suffering uh, and, they, and they stupefy you so that you don't suffer so much from it. And Nietzsche says, that's fine. Good, innocent thing to do, but it won't get you very far. The real thing the priests do is they use what Nietzsche calls their guilty means. That is not innocent means. And the guilty means is the thing which is the actual important thing. Namely, the priests give the slaves suffering a meaning so that the slaves are not now just passively sitting there having pain. They get a meaning for their suffering. And to say they get a meaning for their suffering means not just they get an interpretation for their suffering, but they get an interpretation that's connected with a, a therapy. They're, they're, so they get an action-oriented interpretation of why they're suffering. And Nietzsche says, and the, and the interpretation is, you're suffering because you're evil. You're suffering because you're evil, and that means you're suffering because you're actually like the masters, and you're actually like the masters in that what's really wrong with the masters is that the masters are too willful. The masters do what they want. The masters have a strong will. That's what's wrong with the master's life. They're, the masters are evil because if, he, if the master thinks of smacking you, he smacks you. If the master thinks of groping you, he gropes you. If the master thinks of eating, he eats. He does what he wants. That's what's wrong with the master. And the priests say about, this, about, the, about the slaves, if you look at yourselves, you'll, you'll see that you're not actually so different from the masters. You too have your weak versions of the master's forms of exercising his will. And by virtue of doing that, you're engaging in uh, something that makes you evil. And because you're evil, you're suffering. So that's the story the masters, the, the priests say. So the priests say, you're suffering because you're evil, and you're evil because you're, and now he says, sinful, right? So as Nietzsche says, the priests turn a group of sick people into a group of sinners. That is, they give the slaves the interpretation of their illness or weakness which is not realistic. The reason the slaves are suffering is that they're fucking, sorry, the, the reason the slaves are suffering is that they're weak, they're losers. That's the reason. The, the priests say, no, 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 no. The reason you're suffering is not that you're weak. The reason you're suffering is you're too strong. The reason you're suffering is not that you're, 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 you're at the bottom of the pecking order. The reason that you're suffering is you too, like the masters, have your little dark nooks and crannies of self-assertion.
You are still asserting yourself in some way. That's sinful, and that's the reason why you're suffering. And now, of course, that isn't enough, but Nietzsche says that's an interpretation, but that's an interpretation which is connected with a proposed therapy, and that's what gives it meaning. Namely, Nietzsche says, uh, if it's the case, the priests say, that you are suffering because you're sinful, and you're sinful because you're willful, then, look, I can give you a, a remedy for that. Break your own willfulness. If, if you're suffering because you're sinful, and you're sinful because you're willful, then what do you do? Well, you turn your will against itself, and you break down every impulse toward uh, expression of your will by turning that will against itself. And, 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 that, and, and that will make you overcome your sin. You struggle against your own sin. You, you, you struggle against your own sin, roughly speaking. And now notice Nietzsche says, and this is in the short run wonderful, uh, in the long run, in the medium run, it turns out not to work, and in the long run, it's a catastrophe. Namely, in the short run, he says, this is really good. This is really good for the slaves. Because remember, for him, the slaves are going to suffer no matter what. The reason they're suffering, you can't actually do anything for them. They're terminal. You know, when, when my mother-in-law was dying, um, you know, the, we have this Northern European idea that you, you, you tell people the truth, you know. Um, and so, you know, you, but she didn't want to know the truth. She didn't want to know that she was dying. She wanted people to tell, tell her everything was going to be all right. Um, why am I telling this story? I've lost the thread. Uh, sorry. So, uh, right, so, right, right. So, yes, so the point is, you know, there's nothing you could do for her. She's terminally ill. That was the truth. Similarly, there's nothing you do for the slaves. They're suffering because they are the sort of people they are. There's nothing you can do about it. But what you can do is you can give that suffering some meaning by embedding it in a project that the slaves can see themselves as involved in. So you can't help them from suffering, but you can create for them the project of turning their aggression even more focusedly and even more consistently against themselves and turning their anger and aggression against the the sin, the 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 the, the, the spontaneous bits of, of self-will that, uh, that they encounter in themselves. And now Nietzsche says, and you can do that for quite a long time, and that will, that, will, uh, that will give them something to do. It won't cure them, but of course you can't cure them, right? As Beckett said, you know, you're, 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 we're all alive, boys. There's nothing you can do about that. Um, the, so, there's, so, so you give them this project. So that's, so that's fine. And that means you generate a kind of ascetic ideal. That is, you cause them to commit themselves to the view that turning the will against itself is good in itself. Now, Nietzsche says, in the short run, that works. But notice what happens. You get established, then, a descending spiral because you start with people who are weak and suffering. 
And you give them a project which in the short term occupies them, namely turning their aggression against themselves. But by turning their aggression against themselves, you make them more weak and more debilitated. But if you make them more weak and more debilitated, they're going to suffer more. But if they suffer more, they're going to think they're more sinful. So they're going to get a, do another round of self-abnegation. But another round of self-abnegation is going to make them even weaker. And they're going to suffer even more. So, you, so, so if you think of Marx's description of a kind of expanding upward spiral of human needs, development of human needs and powers, Nietzsche has this kind of descending spiral. We start out weak and we make our, we start out, we start out weak and ill and we make ourselves weaker and more ill by the Christian hypothesis because Christianity tells us to turn our, our aggression against precisely the few little bits of health that are still left in there, right? So so that's a really and now and, and that's why Nietzsche says in the short run this is great, because at any given time, the priest can tell you what to do. He can tell you what's the, what the suffering is all about. And not only tell you what it is, but give you a project. You know, you're not hanging around just being ill. You've got a project. You've got to work on yourself. You've got to think about how sinful you are. You've got to examine your conscience. You've got to confess. You've got to do penance. You've got to give away your possession. You've got to hit yourself with whips. You've got all sorts of things you can do. Your life is full of meaning, right? Full of meaning. And it's better to be suffering in a life full of meaning than suffering in a life without meaning. That's better. But the, the, the nature of the project he gives you is one that in the, in the longer run is going to be, uh, is going to first make the situation worse because you're going to get weaker and weaker. The more you beat yourself, if, if you start out being ill, and it's a bit like, if you start out being ill and you get the doctors to come and the doctors bleed you as they did, the bleeding is not going to make you better and then you're going to get iller and then they'll bleed you again. And so you're in a kind of downward spiral thing. So, 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 so that's the picture. And what he says is, what that means is that in the long run, this, this is why this form of Christian morality, he says, is a form of systematic uh, degeneration. Uh, each, at each stage, it's attractive because it gives meaning, but over the long roll, you can see that it's a self-reinforcing uh, a spiral downward. Now, in addition, he then has various other things he wants to say about that, which I'll talk about next time. So I'm going to stop now because it's it's time to stop. So I've got two more lectures, and then I'm discharged. So I'll talk about this the next time, and then I'll talk. I'll think about something else to talk about the final time. Okay, bye-bye, people.